are going to look at that in Acts chapter 3. We are really continuing the series that ended, or that we moved on from, back in August. Started Acts, I don't know when I started it now. Uh, seems like maybe last spring, and uh, we moved through the summer in Acts. And then our, the launch out series that we did back in August was also from Acts chapter 3. Or chapter 2. We're picking that up again today, uh, picking up where we left off, the beginning of Acts chapter 3. Uh, first church, the church and the community. The, the first church is how we get our um, example, or, or it's where we get our example. What did the first church do? And we're not going to do everything exactly the way they did it. Uh, they, that we are living in a different culture with different technology, with different opportunities. Um, different people, but we can take the principles that we see in the first church and how they handled what was going on, how they responded to their community, because I believe, and I believe I believe rightly, uh, that the, the stories are there as an example, not just an example. There's, there's theology there, but there, there, uh, there's a, uh, a calling to mimic the heart of the first church. And that's what we're looking at as we move through this. Acts chapter 3, uh, we're going to be uh, looking at the whole chapter today. Um, uh, all of chapter 3, through, verses, uh, through verse 26. Now if, we, if you remember, if we go back and we look at Acts chapter 1 and 2, uh, and we, we remember what went on, we would be very tempted to stay there. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, the, the folks in that church were probably very tempted to stay there. Uh, the last verse of chapter 2, every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. You, you go back just a, a, a few verses and you see that about 3,000 people were added to the church at Pentecost. I would love, if, if it would be my, um, my tendency... If we added 3,000 people to the church this Sunday, or, or next Sunday, I, it, all right, we're comfortable for a little while, right? Let's, let's relax a little bit, and, and let, you know, we're, we need to disciple these 3,000 before we reach any more, we might say, or we might want to bask in what God had done. That's not what they did in the first church. That's not how they handled the situation. They won some won a lot, and they said, hey, we can do that again, and they went out to win some more. They knew that what they had seen God do in their midst had to be shared. They knew they had the gospel to share with many, many, many more people, that 3,000 wasn't enough. That wasn't the rest of the world. There was, a st there was still a lot more world to reach. So Acts 3 through 5 show us how the first church reached their community. It is very specific to the Jerusalem community, and we're going to work through that over the next, uh, five, uh, next few weeks. Remember, as we will see toward the end of uh, this, this little mini-series, uh, 3 chapter 5, this is a community that's going to reject them. This is not a community, a community that is excited about the message. This isn't a community that thinks it needs the message at all. And, and that's going to be the response primarily. We don't need this message. And we, as individuals, get that from people as well. I don't need that message, but we know the truth. 
that that message is needed by everyone who has, who has not heard it. And it is our responsibility to share that message with everyone who has not heard it. So read with me Acts chapter 3. We're going we're gonna to read in sections this morning. So first we're just going to read verses 1 through 11 of Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and he said, Look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, silver, silver or gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up and started to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. It wasn't a Baptist temple uh, with all that leaping going on. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. While he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran toward them in what is called Solomon's Colonnade. So Pentecost has happened. We don't uh, know how soon after Pentecost this happened. Uh, we just know Pentecost happened. 3,000 got saved. They continued to meet. They continued to disciple. Uh, more and more were added to their number. Uh, it says, and then one day, one day, Peter and John were out doing what they did. Uh, the, the Jews were called to prayer twice a day, once in the morning at 9 a.m., uh, in the afternoon uh, at 3 p.m. Uh, 9 a.m. was the busiest, 3 p.m. was later. It was a time not just for prayer, but you could bring sacrifices. And one of the pillars of uh, Judaism was giving alms, giving uh, help to people in need. So this lame man knew, I need to be there at the high priority times. Uh, it would be like folks you might see uh, in, uh, in Houston comes to mind, Houston and San Antonio, but I'm sure there are folks here that will be at the major intersections uh, in the cities uh, asking for help of some kind. And they are there at rush hour, both ends of the day, because they know that's the best time to uh, get, some, get some help. So he, that's what he was doing. He was there for that. Peter and John were doing what they always did. But the difference is Peter and John were sensitive to what God was doing around them. Does that sound like something we might have learned about over the last four months, five months or so? They were waiting to see. They weren't waiting necessarily. They were still doing their business. They were going about what they would always do. But their eyes, their ears, their hearts were open to see what God was going to do around them, to see what opportunities opened up in their lives. And we see that in the first three verses. They were just going to do what they always did. They were going to the temple to pray, probably going to the temple with, looking for the opportunity, guaranteed actually, looking for that opportunity to share. Who needs to hear the gospel today? Lord, show me some poor soul. Show me someone who is lost and needs to know the salvation that you offer. And a man who was lame from birth was there at this beautiful, beautiful gate. Now, the interesting thing about this gate, 
the, the way it's described by uh, Josephus, the, the uh, Jewish historian, there were 12, 13 gates around uh, Israel. If uh, Andy or Nadine were here, I could look at them and they would tell me the exact number. Um, but uh, 12 or 13 gates, all of them were inlaid with silver and gold. This particular gate, the one that was called beautiful, was not. It, it was not inlaid with silver and gold like the rest of them. It was uh, inlaid with Corinthian bronze. And Josephus described it as more valuable than all the other gates. Even with their gold and silver, this gate was more valuable because of the intricate artwork that had been done with this Corinthian bronze. So it's an interesting little factoid to keep in your brain that this that didn't look as valuable, didn't have all the components of value that we might think of, was actually the most valuable. Silver and gold had this gate none, right? Would have been an interesting little uh, tidbit for our next passage. The lame man's asking for alms. Uh, Peter and John saw him, verse 4. They looked at him and they said, look at us. He would have been expecting them to walk by and to toss a coin into his uh, basket. Never make eye contact, never say anything, never talk to him. So it was a, probably a startling moment for them to turn to this lame man and say, look at us. And he did. He looked at him and he's expecting. He's thinking, wow, I'm going to get something great today. They are going to lay some cash on me if they want me to look at them. That's probably what was going through his head. So he turned to them expecting to get something from them, but Peter said, I don't have silver and gold. And you can almost imagine him looking up at the gate. I don't have silver and gold, do I? You're sitting here at the gate that doesn't have silver and gold. And yet what I have is more valuable than the silver and gold you're begging for. The, the visual illustration for him is this gate is more beautiful and valuable than any of the other gates, yet it lacks silver and gold. I have the same thing for you. And they tell him, took him by the hand, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, get up and walk. See, they gave what they had in order to make a difference. And we see that throughout the early church. The story is told that uh, one of the popes um, at one time was, was counting his money, uh, counting the, the money that had come in uh, from offerings. And uh, he told, if I remember correctly, it was Thomas Aquinas, that he told the church can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. And Thomas Aquinas responded, you're right, but no longer can we say, get up and walk either. See, Silver and gold is not always what's needed. Sometimes it is. And the church will get to the point where they have that. Even within our reading here, in just a few chapters, they'll get to the point where they're helping financially. They are uh, building each other up. They're helping those who struggle. But the main need was not silver and gold for this man. The main need was not even getting up and walking, though they knew that's what they needed to give him at that moment in order to get him to 
a, rela- a realization of his need for a relationship with Jesus. The church gave what it had in order to make a difference in his life. So in this case, it was a, a, a silver coin and tell him about Jesus might not have made a difference. But to bring him up to his feet and then tell him who did that for him, that was going to make a difference. Church, we have a ministry opportunity here Arlington, Honduras, Colombia, Brazil, Europe, wherever we may go, we have a ministry opportunity to take to people what they need right then and then tell them what they need for eternity. We see that example right here in the, uh, the first church. And then we move through the passage, verses 7 and 8. God worked in this man's greatest physical need. Sure, he was poor, but he was poor because he was lame. He wasn't lame because he was poor. He was was born this way. He was born lame. And so God healed him in verses 7 and 8. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, Peter did. Once his feet and his ankles became strong. This is an interesting phrase. It is a very medically accurate phrase in Greek. It is one of the reasons we believe Luke was a doctor. Because all of his medical descriptions were of such detail that your, your average uh, guy would not have known it that way, wouldn't have understood it that way. And what he describes in a very short, compact passage, in a short, compact uh, uh, amount of time, is everything that he would have described if he had gone through something like surgery and physical therapy. Now, they didn't have that back then. It wasn't, that wasn't the way they worked. But if he had been describing a slow process of healing of this man. That's the way he would describe it. Yet he squished it in just a couple of words. What he's telling us is that God did everything that our medical science might do over the course of a few months. He did it in an instant. That was the power of God working. That was the intelligence of Luke to write that down. At once his feet and ankles became strong, so he jumped up and started to walk. How many of you have ever been around when a one-ish year old starts to learn to walk? How many of them one day just hop up, all right then, and take off? Now, you may may have had the rare one, and you may have had some, I can't believe how quickly they learned, but it begins with pulling up, right? They, they pull up, they, they learn to get the strength in their legs, and oh, oh, that's what these things are for, not just kicking when I'm mad. I can stand up and be mad, too. Um, and they, they stand there, and they bounce, you know, in the bed shaking in the mornings and, and, and waking you up because boom, 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 boom against the wall, you know, and, they're sh- and, they, and, and, and then they start to let go, and they grab on. And they let go, and they're wobbly, and their legs, they're, they're learning where their center of gravity is and how to balance. And then, you know, you've got the keys. That's what we used with uh, uh, the one that comes to mind is Jace, the keys, uh, getting him to walk. And, and him letting go and really wanting those keys and, and plop, crawl on the ground. No, no, you put him back next to the chair, and you take those keys again, and and in two or three times, and finally he takes that first step, and the second falls. Oh, that's, hey, that was great, and you encourage him. You know the process, right? Where's the process? This man had been lame since birth. He was carried in. He didn't walk. He had never walked. 
See, we, we see the physical miracle, right? We, we read that his, his, his feet and his ankles join together, and, and really the, the, the language he's using there is, is of, of two joints being snapped back into place. I mean, that's, that's the language that Luke uses here. He, he was fixed. He was repaired. And we see that we're amazed, but the man walked immediately. He didn't have to learn to walk. There's miracle number two in the midst of, of this miracle. God is working in this man's life on his greatest need. And everybody around saw it. Verses 9 through 11. All the people saw him walking and praising God. He had been there for years. Everybody knew old lame man. I don't know what his real name was. Old lame man. They knew him because he is always there. He's always at that gate. That was his spot. And they saw him within seconds of meeting Peter and John. Not just walking, not a few faltering steps, but running and leaping. You, you, know, you see videos, or maybe you grew up around horses, that, that newborn colt. It takes them a few minutes, right? 30 minutes, maybe an hour, a lot quicker than our kids. Uh, get the legs under them. And within a day, what's that cult doing? Oh, he's kicking and jumping and all over the place. That's what this man was doing in an instant. Don't miss the miracle in the miracle. Because the people didn't. People knew this guy was not doing this 10 seconds ago. What in the world is going on? Well, Peter lets them know wasn't anything in the world really going on. I mean, it was affecting the world, but that wasn't the source. Read with me the rest of the chapter. When Peter saw this, when he saw this group of people hanging around, uh, wondering, filled with awe and astonishment, verse 11 says, he addresses the people. Fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why, why do you stare at us as though we made him walk by our own power or godliness? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in his name... His name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. In this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, who has been appointed for you as the Messiah." Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about through the holy prophets from the beginning. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. You must listen to everything he tells you, and everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. In addition, all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those after him, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophet and the, of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. See, Peter and John standing there having healed this lame man, having this crowd now, and it's probably a pretty large crowd. Remember, this was the time when everybody in town would come 
But one of the two times, everybody in town would come to pray and give offerings. And now he's out in the colonnade, uh, further away from the actual temple proper. Uh, it was a place where more and more people could gather. If I remember correctly, it was across the court of the Gentiles. So it would have had pretty much anybody in the area could have come and talked to them, seen what was going on, seen this formerly lame man. And Peter and John recognized that ministry that they had just accomplished as an evangelistic opportunity. We just healed a man. Now, it wasn't a surprise to him. It wasn't like we healed a guy. Wait, y'all noticed that? Oh, this is amazing. Well, what should we do, John? I don't know, Peter. Maybe we should, I don't know, share the gospel or something. Gosh, that's a good idea. If only we had taken a class. No, that wasn't the thought process. They knew going in, hey, this, this is going to be something. Watch. I'm going to get the opportunity. We are going to get to share the gospel because of this man. They saw where God was working, and they joined him in it. And they recognized that ministry as an evangelistic opportunity. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people. And then in the second half of verse 12, he put the focus where it belonged. He said, why are you amazed at this? Why are you staring at us? This was not us. This wasn't some magic word. This wasn't some uh, uh, incantation. We aren't, uh, 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 we aren't doctors at all. We aren't, we aren't uh, any sort of faith healer. We're not doing that sort of thing here. We are merely followers of Jesus. This act, this miracle, this ministry opportunity came directly from God. And they're thinking when they say that, mm-hmm, and this evangelistic opportunity came directly from God, too. And we are not going to blow it. Verses 13 through 15, uh, it, it's interesting here that uh, Peter's message, Peter's sermon here, in many ways parallels his sermon at Pentecost. He says a lot of the same things. He does some things differently. But there's a basic outline that is very similar to what he did at, uh, at Pentecost, putting the focus where it belonged, recognizing an evangelistic opportunity. And verses 13 through 15, he contextualizes the message. I wish I had a lot more time as, to go through this, what he does here, both with their history and with Jesus, and blends them. But I don't have it. Uh, I'll hit some high points. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Everybody knew, okay, he's talking about Yahweh. Ain't no doubt. There, there's no, this isn't some pagan belief. This isn't uh, some new religion. He is talking to us, speaking our heart religious language. The God of our ancestors, he says, has glorified this servant, Jesus. Now they're thinking Isaiah 52. They're thinking the suffering servant that we talked about uh, a few weeks ago. Glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though Pilate had decided to release him. So this is still fresh enough on their memory. He's able to use this. Now he's talking to this particular group. You know, the, the, the Jews who lived in Egypt during this time, they didn't crucify Jesus. It was a, it was a small group that had uh, gone along with the, the uh, leaders and had encouraged Pilate to do what he was not doing. But let's not lose sight of the fact that it wasn't a small group. It wasn't Pilate. It wasn't the leaders. It was you and me that crucified Jesus. Our sin put him there just as surely as if we had been there yelling, 
Crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be on us and on our children. Or if we had held the hammer and held the nail and driven it into his wrists and feet, we crucified Jesus. But Peter contextualizes the message for them. He tells them what they had done. He, he says, you killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. You killed him. God messed you up, though. Uh, he brought him back. He says, we, we witnessed this. And by faith, uh, uh, rather, and so he says, here's what, here's the message for you. Now, is he going to change the gospel? Absolutely not. But is he going to take where those people are and, and, and uh, introduce the gospel in a particular way? Yes, church, we can take a lesson from that. Uh, folks in Honduras living in a small village where... Uh, their floor is dirt, and their roof is, uh, I don't think we went into any thatched roofs, but we did see sheet metal uh, or uh, uh, clay tiles. Uh, the mud brick almost is, is what they're built, some of them are built out of. Um, it, we've got to contextualize that message. Because I'm not gonna, we're not going to go in there and tell them uh, that the, the message, uh, you're certainly not going to give any sort of health and wealth prosperity gospel right there in the middle of a lot of nowhere uh, where we went on that trip. We're not going to tell them that, look, come to Jesus and life's going to be easy. Uh, the, you're going to get rains all year. It's not going to be 97 degrees anymore. You know, those, those, those are things we would never do. We contextualize the message and we say, look, you're, you are hurting now because of uh, addiction of some kind, or uh, uh, there's a um, fatherlessness maybe in the community, or maybe they're, it's not fatherless, we're just not sure who is, or something like that. We, we address that. We contextualize that message and say, here is the Jesus that's not going to fix all that, not going to make all that go away, but who can fix your soul and begin to heal you from the inside out. Put that message where they were. And ver verse 16, they tell them uh, the reason that they ministered. It's not by us, it's by Jesus. Now, we don't want to use too much, put too much emphasis on them saying the name of Jesus. We, we can get a little bogged down in that sometimes and say that name has power. Y'all, I don't want to be uh, sacrilegious or anything, but if I name my dog Jesus, that name has no power. If I name a chair Jesus, that chair is not going to do anything. The name of Jesus has power because of who it's attached to. The authority, the power comes from Jesus. So when we use that name, we are using uh, the authority and the power that we have in us by the Holy Spirit. The name is not an incantation. The name is not the just right situation and, and order of letters to get something done. It's who that name is attached to. And so, when we pray in the name of Jesus, when we, in their case, when they heal in the name of Jesus, when we minister in the name of Jesus, something happens, not because of the name we use, but because of whom, uh, to whom we are attached. 
God works through us. It might not be a healing where somebody gets up and walks, but it could be a heart healing where somebody gets talked to. It could be a hunger healing where food is given. It could be a justice healing where we fight for the oppressed. It could be any sort of healing like that where we, in the name of Jesus, go to the hurting and say, I don't have silver and gold, or I don't have the thing you think you need, but I have the very thing you actually need. They gave the reason why they ministered. In verses 17 through 20, they presented the gospel. They presented a clear uh, declaration of the gospel. They began with sin. I know you acted in ignorance, he says. Your leaders did too, but you still sinned. You, you wanted a murderer, he says earlier, so you could murder somebody. Well, it makes sense that you'd want the murderer among your group. You asked for Barabbas because y'all are a bunch of murderers, he tells them. Maybe not the best way to open a gospel presentation, but Peter contextualized his message, and he knew what the people needed to hear. But your sin, though they are great, though they, uh, you, you killed the Messiah... Verse 19, repent and turn back. There is no sin that keeps us from Jesus. There is no sin that isn't forgivable. There is no sin that will hide us from the cross. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven. There is no sin that Jesus cannot wash from your life. There is nothing you have done that he cannot forgive. Some of you are thinking, there's just no way. You don't know what I've done, Michael. I don't, you're right, I don't. But I know right now, Peter is talking to the very people who caused the crucifixion of the Son of God. Have you done anything like that lately? Well, yeah, your sin did, but let's, not, let's think literally and not just figuratively or spiritually. And he tells them that they can be what? Saved, forgiven, repent. There is no sin that you can commit that will keep you from Jesus. And then in verses uh, 21 through 26, Peter continues with his gospel presentation, and he gives them a reasoned explanation for why Jesus is who he says he is, who he said he was, why they can put their faith and trust in him, why they can be saved by their faith, and trust in him, but let's go back for just one brief second and look at that verse. Let me find it now. Last half of verse 16. So that faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. By faith, he was healed. By whose faith? Well, I will tell you that when we go out into the community, when we are sharing the gospel, when we are doing compassion ministry, as the title of my sermon is today, when we are meeting needs in order to present an opportunity for evangelism, we go in faith that God's going to do something more than we can do. Peter and John never thought that it was them that healed that guy. They went in faith to him and said, 
we have what you need. But Luke is, in, uh, is uh, intentionally vague here when he says the faith healed him. Because that man had to believe as well. The offer was there. The, uh, the, Peter and John, Peter stuck out his hand and he took the man by the right hand and said, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. What if that man had let go and said, I can't walk? I can't do it. I've been lame since birth, man. You don't know me. I can't walk. I don't think he'd still be sitting there today, but he'd still been sitting there. He had to exercise faith in the offer of healing. There was his faith mixed, mingled, however you want to put it, with the faith of Peter to say, get up and walk, and he was healed by faith. Now, no, no, I'm not going to get into the, you know, you, you can't heal everything, and y'all ain't going to walk out of here and go into the hospital room, like, uh, like into the hospital like some uh, TV preachers have done, and walk down the hall, and be healed, be healed, be healed, and everybody's just going to get up and walk out. Now, no, none of that's going to happen. No, I'm not going to tell you that when you aren't healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. Nope, I'm not going to tell you that either, because you can have mountains of faith and it just not be God's will to heal you. So I'm, I'm not going to say any of those things. What I am going to say, though, is in this situation, Peter and John went out in faith. The man responded in faith, and he was healed, and he was saved. He was changed. Folks, we as a church must be in the community. We've got to be out there. I was amazed when I sat in a um, young pastor's uh, roundtable kind of event a few years back um, and had a couple of uh, pastors that were there. One was pastor of a church of about 1,200, and the other was a pastor of Oh gosh, I think now they're running around 3,000 or 3,500. But to hear them tell the story, particularly of the one whose church is at 3,000 or so now, to hear them tell the story of looking around his congregation of 1,500 people, 2,000 people, and going, we're stagnant. Dude, you got 2,000 people. How can you stagnate with 2,000 people? Same with the pastor of 1,000 folks. He said, we're, we're not growing. We're not doing anything. We are stagnant. We are plateaued. We are lifeless and listless, and we're dead in the water. And to hear that from these, these pastors of, of these large churches, well, what they understood was size does not mean life. There are some big boulders that are dead. There are a lot of big stumps out there that ain't growing nothing. They sure are big stumps, and they're kind of in the way. There's a lot that looks like life in a church and isn't. We, they realized they must be in the community. And one of those pastors, Tom talked about our Can We Talk evangelism training. One of those pastors uh, developed that training in response to what he saw in his church, lifelessness listless listness 
lifelessness. Let's just stay there. Um, stay with that word. Uh, he re- created that, and then this other pastor did the same. Didn't he? He used what the other, uh, the larger pastor created and saw his church changed. They saw it by evangelism. They saw it by getting out into the community. They saw it by being being compassionate to the people that they were among right there in their neighborhoods. We must be in the community, church. Individually, we must be in the community and as a church. Uh, Peter and John weren't out on visitation. In a scheduled event where the church got together and said, okay, now on this day, we're going to go out at this time. We're going to witness to people. They were just doing what they did every day. And they saw where God was working and they joined him there. They, we need to meet people where they are. That's going to get ugly. That's not going to be, that's going to, not going to be nice. It's not going to be pretty. They're, they're, they're not going to, uh, you know, we don't witness to people in churches. In suits and ties. That, see, that's not our evangelistic outreach. We're going to go to the other Baptist church and we're going to witness to those people because at least they're nice and they're clean and uh, they are already sort of civil. And no, those aren't... I did not come for the healthy but the sick, Jesus said. So who are we going to? We've got to meet the people where we can. Or where, rather, where they are. And then we give what they can. Or we give what we can. You know, we, we talk about our budget issues, and we do have them. But, y'all, we are still a wealthy church. By, by comparison, especially to the churches around the world, and we are incredibly wealthy. And y'all might not know this, and, and we need to, uh, I need to make sure I'm, I'm sharing good news uh, uh, when it comes along. For the last two months, uh, April, March and April, and we're on track for it in May as well at the moment, we have brought in more money than is budgeted. Like, we have increased our offerings the last two months by $20,000. That is a celebration. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that. Now, if you'd asked me, and, and, and uh, he's not here, so I won't pick on him, but one gentleman did ask me what, you know, what we can do. We, we need to ask people to give more. And I, I told him, I think our givers are tapped out. And God said, watch this, boy. And, and $20,000 increase. I have no idea where it came from. I, I, you know, I don't know what people give, I, so don't ask me. I can't tell you, and I wouldn't tell you if I, if I did know. I just know God did it. People are giving what they can. So we're a wealthy church. There will be times when we have to give money away. And we will do things for people. And we will do that with the idea of, well, we're a church. We take care of our family. That's a benevolence ministry. But we also go out and we take care of people out there. We help people out there. And you know what? People are going to take advantage of us. They're going to take the money and run. Ooh. Take the money and run. They're going to do it. And you know what we need to do? Go on to the next person and help them. We need to be out there. We need to live the example of Christ, church. We need to be willing to give ourselves away, like the video I showed. Give ourselves away. Not worry about me. Not worry about us. Sacrifice ourselves. See the evangelistic opportunities when they come up. See where God is working. Oh, my gosh, he's, he's brought me to this position. And, and this is the hardest thing for me to wrap my head around from experiencing God, is that everything, I need to look at everything that happens in a day 
as a possible invitation from God. That phone call I'd really rather not take. That might be an invitation from God to work in somebody's life that day, that moment. That, that knock on the door. That, 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 that family member, maybe it's for you. That, that disgruntled waiter or waitress, the checker that you know, always has a scowl on her face and, and never does anything right. And, you know, is that God working in somebody's life and inviting you to join them? We've got to change the way we see our lives and see every opportunity to share the gospel. And then share the gospel. Actually do it. Boy, I can talk about all day, just, just try me, about ways we can see evangelistic opportunities. We've got to move beyond seeing and start doing. And then we see what Peter and John did. Once they shared the gospel, they continued to talk to them, continued to engage them, and explain why this gospel is their gospel too. And we may have to do that. We, it takes time to share the gospel. It, it's great to have a two-minute testimony and a one-minute presentation because that may be all you have time for. But we need to be willing and ready to say, hold on, I've got an appointment, but you've got some questions, and you're curious, you're looking, and I, and I want to help you through this. Take the time to engage. That's our compassion ministry as a church what Tom presented so well this morning, all the different ways that we're going to be about that in the coming months and years. Uh, we're going to talk about that tonight at our, uh, our missions testimony. We're going to talk about having uh, what we did in Honduras. It's also going to be a missions uh, town hall. We're, we're going to answer questions about the whys and the hows and the wheres, and I'll tell you right now, a lot of the hows and the wheres, we're not real sure either. This is an ongoing process, and we are in the infant I don't even. I think we're like in in utero. Not even. We're not even infant yet. We are still developing to even give birth to this baby, um, but we're working on it. But maybe this morning you need not a compassion ministry. You might, but what you need is the compassion of Jesus. You need to hear the gospel. So I want to share that gospel with you. Jesus was compassionate because. Jesus knew that God was holy, is holy and just, and that he will judge sin. He cannot be around sin, and he will judge it. He will remove it from him for eternity. And that means removing us from him for eternity because of our sinfulness. We deserve it. We're willfully sinful. We choose to sin, and he will remove us in our sinfulness from him forever. But the compassion of Jesus, in obedience to his Father, said, I am going to take that sin. And I'm going to take the punishment on the cross. Perfect son of God did not deserve it and yet chose to do it. He died for everyone and he rose three days later to say, you know what? Not only have I defeated sin like I told you I would, here's my example. I defeated death. And then we get to respond just like that lame man did. The hand was there. He could have refused it, but he took it and he pulled himself. He didn't pull himself up. He couldn't have gotten up if he had ever wanted to, but God healed him when he said, yes, this morning you need to have your heart healed. You need to have your sins forgiven. You need to have salvation assured. Will you say yes to God? He is putting out his hand, asking you to take it. Will you take that hand 
and have him lift you up out of your sin. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the continual offer, that 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 hand is still there, reaching for us, calling for us, offering salvation, offering hope, and yes, sometimes even offering healing, physical healing. God, you are moving in this place. You are moving among hearts, and I pray that your work will be done among us, that you will draw the lost to you. Lord, that you will take the heart of a believer, mold it and change it and soften it to be compassionate, to see the opportunities to minister to people outside of these walls and see those ministry opportunities as evangelistic opportunities, that we will reach our community, our nation, and the world for Jesus Christ using every means available to us to do that. Lord, we pray for your movement in this place this morning as you deal with each and every heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So what's your decision this morning? What do you need to do? Do you need to accept Christ? Do you need to be baptized? Would you like to join our church? Do you need to soften your heart to the compassionate ministry needs around us? Do you need to pray this morning? God, show me where you're working so I can join you there and see the opportunity to share the gospel and then take the opportunity to share the gospel. We're going to take a couple of minutes of, of decision time responding to him. So let's stand and let's sing. I'll be in this corner. Tom will be in that corner over there. You can do business with God individually or I can pray with you. Either way, you come.